The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, this is Eric Savitz. I'm associate editor for Barron's. Welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I'm uh, excited to have with me today Dan Morgan, who's a VPN uh, portfolio manager at Synovus Trust, uh, who uh, is focused on technology stocks, as we uh, as we often are here. And uh, Dan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Eric. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the market right this second. Uh, you know, of course, we had a, um, a producer price index uh, report uh, that was uh, uh, showed less inflation than uh, than the street had expected. I have a little sense of deja vu. I feel like I saw this last week. Um, what what uh, tell me a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of the reaction and, and why stocks are rallying on this report? It seems somewhat unfair in regards to. Um... The fact that the tech sector in a whole is trading simply off the Fed when there's obviously a lot of other factors impacting the group. I think at the beginning of this sell-off that we saw in the tech sector, there were a lot of comparisons being made uh, to what we saw back in the summer of 2000. And, and a lot of people were drawing comparisons in terms of multiples and, and you know deterioration in the group as a whole. And I think we've kind of gotten beyond that. Um, we are exhibiting, obviously, a slowdown in a lot of key areas within technology. Uh, we could go through those uh, in regards to, you know, spend rates in terms of online advertising. You look at the pullback in terms of, you know, demand for consumer products like PCs and smartphones and tablets and so forth. But we're not seeing the rug being pulled out from under the group like we did back in 2000. So um, I was actually managing all technology portfolios at that time. So I'm very familiar with what's transpired during that that time period. And we're really not seeing that. And as you said, Eric, it seems like we're uh, living in a very simplistic uh, look at the tech sector, which is that it just simply trades off the Federal Reserve and what they're expected to do. And obviously, if they're going to continue to tighten, then that draws concerns that we're going to see slower economic growth, which will lead to slower IT spend rates uh, for software and hardware. We'll see companies evaluating their cost structures. And of course, that would impact negatively the tech sector across the board, including enterprise. So um, I think that is an overly simplistic viewpoint of the tech group. I mean, you look at the Gardner data in terms of IT budget spend rates, they're still around three and a half, four percent projected for this year. Um, there are some green leafs that we could kind of focus on. I'm not all the way negative on the group uh, that, you know, could point to potential turnaround. We see the SOX is rebounded significantly in the last couple of weeks. That's a good indicator going forward that the chip sector is recovering to some extent, uh, which is a good sign for the entire tech sector as a whole. Uh, yeah, so you know, that, that, um, really go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's an interesting question about the stocks because we had uh, we've just gone through this uh, period with uh, uh, serious component shortages across the board. Right, we went through a period when no one could get enough components that was impacting uh, everybody from PC manufacturers to um, uh, enterprise hardware companies, all sorts of other players in between, and certainly the automotive industry. And now, as we've uh, we've had a, a kind of a combination of um, a little bit of softening demand or dramatic softening demand in the case of PCs 
and um, and and better supply uh, in for, for not for every single part, but for for many parts. And uh, the result is lower component prices. And while lower component prices is is good news for lots of those hardware uh, hardware companies. And so we uh, there's some interesting cross currents. But and as you say, the semis have bounced pretty uh, pretty impressively off the bottom. And is, I, I guess the question there is whether they're seeing past the chasm. Uh, to a rebound at some point next year post uh, downturn, uh, or if there's some other factors involved. Yeah, so you can't win, right, Eric? <laughs> you know, a, a year ago, we, we did a lot of discussions about the supply shortages, the component shortages in the chip sector, how companies couldn't get enough chips, they couldn't make them fast enough. And then all of a sudden, we started to see a slowdown in PCs. We started to see a slowdown in tablets and smartphones. And then that started to kind of spill over into other areas like gaming uh, to a certain extent, uh, some softness in terms of data center. And now we've gone to the other extreme where it's like, oh, wow, we're getting this huge slowdown. Uh, this is horrible. But there is kind of a silver lining to this, right? And that is that, well, now there's more components available for automobiles and for different things that were having problems in the past. So, you know, I think if we look at the chip sector, Eric, we have to think of them as being the plankton of the technology sector. Everything has chips in it. Even software has to run on hardware that has chips. And if we look forward to, let's say, going into, you know, the subsequent upcoming quarters, and we look at kind of consensus estimates, uh, we would expect the chip sector in terms of earnings uh, to kind of start to turn around here in the third quarter of 23. So I think that the fact that the SOX has bounced back so significantly, it was down 40% year to date. As we mentioned, it's kind of closed in, uh, you know, only down 20, 28% year to date. Uh, that people are starting to see value in these names, are starting to see multiples start to make sense. The other thing I've noticed too, Eric, and I know you follow the group really closely, is that it seems like when a company like a Micron or an Intel or another chip stock comes out with what we know are going to be tough comparisons in terms of the quarter, they also come out and announce that they're taking strides to kind of turn things around. Could be from a cost structure or could be from any different avenue, and the stock seems to rise on that news. So it's kind of interesting. It bridges us into the NVIDIA report, which will be later right. – uh, this week. And we know that the gaming sector is really tough, right? We know that things are slowing down in terms of data center. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what kind of news comes out from NVIDIA and if it is applause by the street, like we saw with the Micron and Intel reports that, you know, preceded them by a couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, uh, as you well know, uh, Dan, that uh, uh, all things are relative on Wall Street. And it's it's not about the actual numbers. It's not even about the actual guidance. It's about um, how how are the numbers and the guidance relative to expectations, and are there signs right. of uh, signs of life, uh, uh, signs that things might be getting a little better? Uh, you know, I, I think it's. Um, uh, I mean, I guess the question with Nvidia is where we might see some of those signs of um, um, improving outlook, whether they say positive things about uh, data center, for example, or uh, for other parts of the business. What what would you watch? Right. Yeah, you bring up a good point, Eric. We know that the gaming sector, which was at one point the largest generator revenue for them, is probably going to produce about a, a negative 60% year-over-year revenue comparison uh, in this upcoming third quarter. So we know that segment is hurting. But I am somewhat hopeful and optimistic that coming into their data center group, 
uh, which in this upcoming third quarter, we're looking for about $3.8 billion. Uh, that's about a 29 to 30% increase from a year ago. And the, the reason I'm somewhat encouraged is if we look at, for example, advanced micro devices, who reported a couple weeks ago, their data center unit came in about $1.6 billion. That was up about 45%. Uh, Intel, their data center group, was only down 16%. That's not too bad considering they have other issues beyond just what's happening from a macro perspective. So I think a possibility for maybe a little bit of some green leaves or maybe coming in a little bit better than expected is we know that gaming is going to be tough, but maybe they can beat that $3.8 billion uh, that they're targeting right now coming into this third quarter in terms of that data center group. Um, we know that last quarter, Eric, as you remember, Remember, uh, they did come out and pre-warn coming into the quarter on both gaming and data center, so there really wasn't a lot of surprises. Uh, so we're hopeful that we'll get a little bit of a better pickup. We know that they have some new chips that they're bringing out, the Ada Lovelace, which is a new gaming chip that's been very well received. They have the new Hopper architecture that they're using in the data center and the AI space. So there's, there's some optimism that with these new chip rollouts that maybe things will be a little bit better than the street's looking for, and maybe that would give us, like you say, Eric, some of those green leaves that we're looking for that would give some sort of substance behind the rally that we're seeing in the socks. You know, one of the other interesting uh, things that we'll see this week, uh, also tomorrow uh, after the close, is um, is earnings from Cisco. Um, Cisco, uh, of course, has a little bit different dynamic than uh, that NVIDIA does, but there are there's a little bit of overlap in, um, in, in the cloud where Cisco was a little slow to enter the space but is now um is has now uh, picked up some steam um in providing um infrastructure to uh to the cloud players uh, there's uh there's an interesting dynamic there i think where they've been reporting um a, a very substantial order growth in the last few quarters and are have grown backlog fairly dramatically uh there is some worry that the order growth will uh, reverse here as a result of some slow, slower uh, growth in IT spend. I'm curious what you think we'll see from Cisco tomorrow, both in terms of uh, you know revenue and profits, but also on the order front and what they might have to say about uh, the tone of demand. Well, you're right, Eric, and uh, I have been following Cisco for over 30 years. I'm sure you've been following it for a long time. You remember John Chambers with his West Virginia twang, and we remember them as the founder of the router and switch market, right, when we made that migration, uh, you know, into a client-server environment off of the mainframe, off of the Unix. And, you know, as you mentioned, since then, they've made huge strides uh, to really diversify their business. They've gotten into software. They've gotten into cloud. They've gotten into security. So it's a much different company than it was, let's say, 25 years ago. And you're right. You know, if we went into this uh, fourth quarter, uh, orders were down 6% from a year ago, uh, which was a little bit better than the consensus, which was down 10%. But we have to compare this to a 31% jump in the previous year. So now we enter into what is their first quarter of 23. And like you said, Eric, the, the thought process is that Hopefully, Cisco can continue to, to deliver 
in terms of this backlog and in terms of this order growth versus very, very strong growth, let's say about a year ago. So we have tough comparisons for them, but they're not as negative as we might imagined with the downturn that we're seeing in tech. So I look at Cisco, as you mentioned, Eric, as a good barometer of what's going on in the security software. As you mentioned, the migration, give us a little bit more information on what's happening in the cloud space. That area is actually, I think, still pretty healthy. If we go back and we dissect the numbers, for example, on the last earnings cycle, we see, let's say, Amazon, AWS, uh, they reported a 27% jump in growth in their revenues. If we look at, let's say, a, a Microsoft Azure, it was up 35%. It was below consensus, but it was still a pretty good number. GCP, which is Alphabet's uh, data center cloud entry, that was up 37%. So I'm hopeful and optimistic, Eric, that we'll continue to to see some strength here in Cisco in regards to that movement towards the cloud and also not seeing a massive pullback in terms of order growth, in terms of backlog, uh, which really spiked up uh, about a year ago. And hopefully they can not be as negatively impacted to this slowdown that we're seeing in tech uh, that we may be exhibiting in some other groups. Yeah, I think there's a couple of uh, interesting questions we'll see tomorrow. One uh, is... Uh, there's a little bit of nervousness that some of the very large backlog they have uh, could uh, might might go away. That they could have pushouts, cancellations. Um, that some of those, the, some of that might be lost over time. Is that something you worry about, or do you think that's uh, like an, not a real concern? Well, Eric, it's interesting because if you think of Cisco and you think of the conference calls that we've had with them, they've been pretty adamant that a lot of the pullback that they had in order growth and so forth and sales growth was not an issue from a demand component, right? It was more of a component opponent, right? It was a shortage of supplies and so forth that prevented them from, from delivering that growth. So that is a concern, Eric. I mean, obviously, after the Microsoft report that we saw and some of the key software companies like Adobe and Salesforce and so forth that are really on the enterprise space. There's always these worries that, you know, IT managers are going to kind of hold off on some of these larger projects and maybe delay them a quarter or two in terms of, you know, laying out the, the proceeds to continue to advance through the project. So that is an issue coming into the Cisco report, um, especially impacting their cloud and their software space. That would be, you know, rhythm to or echoing what we've seen in the past with some of these larger uh, software players. So we'll just have to see how it impacts Cisco. Again, I think people listening to this have to bear in mind that, you know, Cisco is a much different company than it's been in the past. And it's a company that is going through a transition and there are going to be bumps in the road during that process. Got it. Okay. So I want to uh, just come back to uh, something uh, uh a, a little bit chip related where, where the dynamic feels similar, which is in the semiconductor equipment um, sector, you have companies that uh, like Cisco have built up very large backlogs uh, that were uh, again, like Cisco were uh, uh, constrained uh, uh, to some degree by their ability to get enough components, which is quite ironic uh, given that they make equipment to make components. Um, right. <laughs> uh, but, but, right. So that that's and 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 then there's this interesting kind of uh, uh, kind of clash between the short term view and the longer term view. And what I mean here, right, is that in the short term, you've had 
um, a number of players, uh, including uh, Micron and Intel and a few others uh, that have in the near term uh, reduced their uh, production uh, plans uh, for say 2023 and are uh, slowing the addition of additional supply in response to um, a slower chip, uh, slower chip demand. And at the same time, um, Micron and Intel um, in particular, but not only Micron and Intel, um, have announced very large uh, production capacity increases, uh, particularly uh, in building new fabs in the U.S. Micron's building, a, you know, the, the, I think the largest uh, memory factory in the world in um, upstate New York. Intel is adding capacity and uh, they're building factories in, in um, Ohio and Arizona. Um, that would seem like really good long-term fundamental, uh, a really good long-term fundamental underlay uh, for uh, for the chip uh, equipment guys. Uh, but the street's been a little more focused on their near, you know, near-term issues. I'm curious how you feel about that. And then I want to get to uh, something that just happened this morning on the semiconductor equipment manufacturing side, which I think you'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, somebody really big stake yep. in Taiwan Semiconductor. But let's talk a little bit about the underlying dynamic first. Yeah, so Eric, you bring up a lot of interesting points. And, you know, the first thing, obviously, is companies like Micron and Intel are continuing to build out and add capacity even in this intermediate downturn because they see the opportunities in the long run. You know, if we take kind of a step back, I've been following this group for 30 years. It was very cyclical you know, 25 years ago. And it was really dictated by memory. It was dictated by what was going on in the PC space, the tablet space, to a certain extent, smartphones. And then you think of all of these extra usage for chips, be it in autos, be it industrial purposes, electric vehicles and, and data center and so forth. So I think what we're starting to see is that the street may be seen a little bit beyond these, these short-term cycles uh, in regards to you know, it used to be that once demand slowed down, then you, you you totally cut your CapEx expenses, you delayed the building of the new fab and, and the building out of the new equipment. And now I think what we're seeing is that companies are continuing to move ahead even through these intermediate downturns because the the long-term trend still stays intact, which is that we continue to expand the usages of chips in various purposes that didn't exist 20 years ago. So going back to, you know, the top equipment players, we look at companies like Applied Materials and KLA Tenacore and LAM Research, and to a certain extent, ASML, which has their own niche space. But, you know, you would think that the long-term uh, cycle would still stay intact for them just because of not only these companies you mentioned before, Micron and Intel desire to add capacity, but we also have you know, major push from a political perspective to move some of these fabs back to the U.S. right away from the, the Taiwan basin, so to speak, and to build, get some of that capacity here in the U.S. where we can actually build our own chips uh, to a certain extent. And we're just not fabulous, you know, design players like we are right now. So, you know, I think the long term on these companies is still very positive. Um, I know LAM research on their last call was 
uh, pretty well received. They were pretty forthright with what was going on in the space, and the street kind of applauded the stock and moved it up. So I would think the dynamics, um, you know, this kind of pay-to-play, which was their old uh, slogan they used to use back in the 90s, which is you have to pay to play. You have to keep building out and building more capacity and you know, shrinking down your line widths and all the things we talk about uh, to be more efficient in terms of producing chips. So it is interesting, though, because typically you would have seen Micron, Intel, and TSMC, which we'll talk about in a minute, really slash their budgets in terms of CapEx uh, for build-outs. And we're we're seeing a little bit of a tepid pullback, but nothing that we would compare to what is being reflected, let's say, in the trading of the SOX uh, uh, in terms of the negativity on the sector. Yeah, so so let's talk about TSMC. So TSMC, of course, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, they are by far the dominant uh, contract uh, semiconductor uh, builder. They are, as the name implies, they're based in Taiwan, and there's been some nervousness uh, about TSMC because of, for geopolitical reasons, people are worried about what China might do uh, to Taiwan, and is there you know risk of what would happen to TSMC if the the Chinese uh, took control, and then you layer on top of that a little bit softer um, uh, chip demand, and the stocks come under some pressure. So, who comes riding to the rescue? <laughs> um, so, so Ber- Berkshire has taken a stake in TSMC, and as you know, uh, it is fairly unusual for Warren to go dabbling in, in tech. He has had a stake in Apple uh, for a right. while, uh, but he has not. Uh, uh, he has not typically been a big player in technology. What what do you take away from uh, the fact that Berkshire has taken a stake in, in Taiwan Semi? Well, obviously, it's very encouraging because we all know that Warren Buffett is obviously a value-based investor. He saw value back in Apple when he was buying shares, when that was out of favor, and he's done extremely well with that. Obviously, TSMC, like you mentioned, for the reasons the stock has pulled back. I know at one point in time, I think they had a CapEx budget for, I believe, this year at about $40 billion. I think they've pulled that back. Uh, a little bit um, over the course of the last, um, you know, couple of months, but um, they are definitely the, the largest foundry producer in the world. We think of Intel trying to increase their capacity, especially here domestically, uh, from a foundry perspective. You also have Global Foundries, which is another player in that group. But TSMC is definitely the, the behemoth in that in that area, and there are a lot of moving factors. You talk about you know, tensions between China and Taiwan. Well, how does that impact the production of chips coming out of Taiwan? But obviously, you know, Warren Buffett sees value here in terms of the, you know, the multiples and is, you know, putting a large investment into the group. I think it was $5 billion, uh, which, you know, is very encouraging, right, Eric? Because it his record in terms of, you know, buying stocks that have been beaten down and seen value in them is pretty strong. His returns are uh, above the market. He's done extremely well over a long period of time. And this is encouraging uh, from a valuation perspective and also, you know, when TSMC does return back to growth, when the chip sector does turn around. So, uh, again, very, um, you know, good good move in terms of TSMC. I've always uh, been very uh, encouraged by that stock and, again, kind of repeating the success he had with Apple. Yeah, you know, you know and one of the things, of course, about this, as you allude to, is if you want to play uh, the, the contract chip uh sector, uh, chip manufacturing sector, there are very limited plays. Uh, you know, TSMC is, is by far the largest. Intel is, um, 
uh, is building out a contract chip uh, manufacturing capability, but is a few years away from that really impacting uh, their their demand. Samsung is a player here. Um, and you mentioned Global Foundries. Now, one of the interesting things about Global Foundries, which is uh, you know, the primary US-based uh, player, is uh, uh, Global Foundries doesn't really compete in most cases with TSMC. TSMC makes cutting edge uh, chips. They make microprocessors and um, and other uh, other parts that rely on a very small line with uh, cutting edge chip technology. Uh, Global Foundries makes commodity parts mostly uh, lagging edge uh, components, the kinds of things that actually have been in the most short supply uh, in in the recent uh, in recent months. Uh, but there aren't too many other ways to play it, are there? That, that other than playing the equipment stocks themselves. Yeah, you're right, Eric. I mean, it's a very narrow market. Um, you know, you mentioned the the players, uh, Samsung being up there with TSMC. They're probably a lion's share of the foundry capacity throughout the world. And, you know, that was one of the major reasons, you know, why Intel made the decision to start to build out. You mentioned Columbus, Ohio. You mentioned Arizona. They're going to start building their own foundries. And, you know, it's really a met with applause from a lot of the domestic producers of chips, you know. Uh, you go down the board of all the big names, even Qualcomm, all the Silicon Valley names were, hey, if you allow us to you know, build chips here in the U.S. and you have the sophisticated uh, capacity to do it, um, we don't need to go overseas to Samsung and TSMC. And it's just how quickly I believe Intel can get those uh, factories up to capacity, build those relationships with the local producers, even an AMD who they compete against in the computer area and the server space, and start to become a bigger player in the foundry space. So um, it is interesting that it has gotten to the point where we produce pretty much all our chips uh, in the Pacific Rim. We have very little capacity here in the U.S. domestically, and we are very susceptible. So uh, I'm hopeful and optimistic that uh, that you know we can carry through from a domestic perspective and build out capacity uh, and get back to the point where we do not just solely rely on these these outside companies uh, to produce uh, the actual chips for us. So we'll see how that goes. So one other thing that I want to uh, uh, chat about uh, that uh, uh, kind of a trend that we're seeing in the technology sector, uh, one that has a, a bittersweet uh, feel is a, a, a flurry of, of significant job cut announcements, right? So there, there was a report yesterday that Amazon is getting ready to cut 10,000 corporate jobs. Now, Amazon, by the way, has like 1.5 million employees, although a lot of those are you know, in, in uh, do delivery and work in warehouses. And so that's still a significant number for them. Of course, we just had a large job cut uh, at Meta, you know, Facebook's uh, parent. We've seen job cuts from, of course, uh, Elon cut a lot of jobs at Twitter, but there've been a whole flurry of others, um, including some pre-public uh, pre ones where there have been uh, job cuts. Um, and and what's fascinating uh, and, and might be surprising to some people is, that uh, Wall Street tends to celebrate these announcements. Um, Meta's stock uh, rallied pretty sharply when they announced those job cuts. Uh, uh, how do you how do you think about that? Do you think we're going to see a lot more of that? How should investors interpret those kinds of announcements? Well, let's kind of look at each one individually. If we look at Meta, which which you just mentioned, um, obviously they've been trying to be more 
cost effective in terms of watching what they're spending their money on. There's a lot of issues out there in regards to this movement towards the metaverse. Uh, we know that their reality labs segment continues to lose money. They've got a new uh, virtual reality headset that's coming out here soon that they're excited about. But the bottom line is they're not really making money from that. And, you know, the model for Meta has always been to monetize their user base. Uh, they have different extensions on that, you know, in terms of Reels, they have WhatsApp, they have all these different ways. But the bottom line is they're looking for people to engage on their websites and then they're going to, you know, charge uh, for the advertising dollars to go on there and that's how they make their money. Um, the, the discouraging thing about Meta is they don't have really another act. You know, if you look at, let's say Amazon has AWS, you look at Alphabet has GCP, uh, they really don't have a profitable next big business other than just kind of extending on this current, um, you know, monetization of, of their user base. So uh, there, that creates a bit of a black cloud on Meta, but obviously coming out, like you mentioned, Eric, last week and announcing that they're going to cut costs, uh, they're going to, you know, reduce their, their headcount, they're going to try to be a little bit more cost containment, somewhat reminiscent of a process that we saw Alphabet go through about three or four years ago. You may remember they hired a new CFO that was very dynamic that was going to start spending more time on some of these, uh, you know, bets that they were making that weren't paying off and they were going to start to spend more time, you know, focusing on the bottom line. So I think that's what we're seeing with Meta is, um, you know, trying to kind of get this company back on track in terms of growth with the idea that we know that ad revenue uh, growth has been slowing down. Third quarter was down 3.6%. We know that we're seeing a slowdown in companies spending money to advertise on the internet. So how do we get this company to grow again? Is it metaverse? That's a, that's a huge uh, controversy whether that's going to pay off or not. Uh, so how are they going to get this company back on track? So I think that's the real issue going forward with Meta. One, one, uh, one, uh, thing that I just happened to see today is that, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the focus of uh, a little bit more financial focus at Alphabet. There's an actually an activist sent a letter to Alphabet, uh, I believe today or yesterday, I think it was today, um, that is not unlike the one uh, we saw from Altimeter um, uh, a little bit before uh, Meta's earnings asking you know that in that piece, Altimeter investor, investor firm was was asserting that Meta ought to cut cut heads and reduce spending. Uh, they now have actually responded to that effectively by by doing some job cuts. The implication of this other uh, this new letter to Alphabet uh, again is that they're overstaffed, that they overspend, and I think in their case in particular, it's kind of it's a little parallel to the. Um, uh, to, to the Reality Labs situation at Meta. As you know, Dan Alphabet has a business segment that they call Other Bets. Um, right. Other Bets, uh, uh, the best one, the, the best known one is is Waymo, their self-driving car. Yeah, driverless vehicle. Yep. <laughs> um, they are losing uh, lots of money in Other Bets. Um, they've been piling up losses. In, in a funny way, it, it seems to have a little less impact on their uh, their stock performance than, uh, than than the metaverse does on on Meta's. They have haven't gone all in on Weibo exactly. And, uh, and to your point, they have some other uh, they have some other strong businesses, in particular with the cloud. But I wonder whether you think Alphabet is likely to 
to to take steps as well. There's uh, uh, there's there's been a, some pressure on them to pick up the pace on stock repurchase or perhaps pay um, a dividend. Um, do you think you're going to see some of these kinds of moves by Alphabet in the spirit of what we've seen from, uh, you know, from Meta and, and Amazon and others? Yeah, I think you're right, Eric. I mean, you look at Alphabet, they're exhibiting the same struggles that Meta is, right, in terms of their advertising revenue was only up 6.8 on the last quarter. It's definitely slowed down tremendously over the last year. You mentioned the GCP unit, which is their global uh, Google Cloud platform. As you know, they are losing money. That's an operating negative loss. Somehow they're not able to make money in that. And then they have the other bets. You mentioned Whammo and some other things that they're working on uh, that really haven't generated a lot of profits. They kind of are lost centers. So I think Alphabet, um, probably like Meta and Amazon, is probably going to have to go through a bit of a, a reshuffling here in regards to, you know, kind of right-sizing their top-line growth to some of these uh, expenditures that they've been taking on, these new projects that haven't really created a lot of fruit so far. Uh, you know, they may have to take a step back from those uh, and let some uh, some costs go, some headcount go in those various divisions, kind of like what we saw with Amazon uh, coming out and, and releasing people that were tied to the Alexa and other areas uh, that haven't really been as profitable. So I think all these FANG stocks um, that have had these these great runs that, you know, kind of growth at all costs now are having to kind of, you know, look in the mirror a little bit and, and try to, to right-size their revenues to their expenses. And if there are certain businesses uh, that haven't been paying off, that are losing money, it may be time to to, to downsize those and, and focus on where your profits are coming from. So um, I think Alphabet's in a little bit position, better position than Meta uh, in regards to not putting such a huge amount of uncertainty surrounding the Omniverse. They do have some businesses uh, on YouTube and some other things. So we mentioned GCP that, that are producing or had produced very strong revenue growth for them. Uh, so, But I think you're right, Eric. I think this trend is going to continue to ripple through uh, these mega tech uh, companies as they continue to right size their overall expenses and eliminate various businesses that just aren't profitable. So uh, we are we're, we are over time, but I do want to just uh, touch on one uh, last thing uh, that I, I think uh, I can't I can't let you get away without talking a little bit about Apple. And uh, Apple is in a very interesting situation right now, as you know, a little over a uh, I guess two weekends ago, uh, they take the they took the fairly unusual step of publishing a uh, a note that basically uh, warned that they were having a new set of uh, production uh, problems for the uh, their high end iPhones, iPhone Pro and Pro Max, uh, at a factory. Now they didn't talk about it uh, that who it was, but because they never talk about their partners, but it was clearly Foxconn uh, with it with the, which is having a a factory where there was a COVID outbreak and where they had to reduce uh, production. And uh, that has led the street to chop their expectations uh, for iPhone production for the December quarter. Some people think they will actually uh, be down year over year in revenue and profits. Uh, you know, their most recent quarter uh, was strong overall, but a lot of that came from the Mac where there had been some pent up demand from some previous production issues. Um, and there were some other signs that there, if you, when you listen to the Apple call, um, Luca Maestri sounded a little more subdued and cautious than he might have 
in some recent quarters. And, um, and so there's a lot of cross currents for Apple. Um, and then I think one of the key questions is uh, just how long these production issues linger and whether it's going to impact, you know, they, do they destroy some demand in the process? And so I'd, I'd love to get your, to wrap up with your, your thoughts on Apple and then we'll, uh, we'll let everyone go. Thanks. Well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, I mean, if we look at, you know, iPhone revenues in the last quarter, they were surprisingly better than expected. They're up about 9.6%. There was a thought process that some of their higher end, higher margined iPhone 14 phones actually did very well, where some of their older base legacy models were not as successful. So obviously, when they start talking about production issues going into the holiday quarter, which is traditionally their strongest quarter, uh, that raises a lot of red flags. Um, you mentioned on the last quarter, there was a lot of strength in the, both the Macs and the wearables. And the subsequent quarter before that, pretty much um, you know, iPads, Macs, and wearables were all negative. Uh, so that, you know, was kind of a a one-off as we kind of went into the most recent quarter where we had two segments, Macs and wearables, do better than expected. And, you know, the reason that's important, as you know, Eric, is we can use these other units to make up for, let's say, a lack of growth uh, in their iPhones. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still – it's interesting, Eric, because I look at Apple as a stock that it, it kind of has offensive and defensive characteristics. And what I mean by that is that when things are going bad, like they were a couple months ago, and everybody was so negative on tech, at one point we almost thought that Apple was going to eclipse $3 trillion. It got very close to doing extremely well in a very bad environment. And then when the tide kind of changed as we got closer – to closing down the most recent quarter and people were more optimistic about various issues in terms of production, the stock rallied on that news. So I'm still very positive on Apple. It's a very large position for us that we hold. Um, obviously, there are concerns coming into the holiday quarter that you just uh, communicated in regards to whether they're going to be able to uh, you know, see the demand that they expected, whether they're going to have any issues in terms of production. Uh, but they just seem to come out and be able to deliver a surprise on almost every quarter that people didn't expect to kind of make up for all these other concerns and black clouds that seem to always surround the stock. So, you know, for your listeners, as I mentioned, I just look at Apple as, as a stock that seems to do well in almost every environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's down, uh, uh, it's down about 14% for the year, but that's, that's less uh, than many of its, many of its other large cap rivals. Uh, Apple is uh, never ceases to surprise, and I, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, I sound like a TV uh, guy now, saying we're going to leave it there. But uh, thank you so <laughs> much, Dan, uh, uh, for being with us and for all of your, uh, your thoughts. And uh, we will definitely have you return again before long. And uh, thanks as well to all of our listeners for staying with us and uh, getting through us our little uh, audio problems there at the beginning. Please join us again tomorrow on Barron's Live. Leslie Albrecht, who's the uh, author of Market Watch's financial face-off column, will talk to Market Watch financial uh, personal finance reporter Andrew Keshner about some interesting things that have come up in their column about where to shop and whether to buy ETFs and uh, various other things. Thanks to all of you for being with us. Please be well, stay safe, and join us again soon. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.